Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir, the conversation we love to have about food, passion, making a difference in the world, and people who are solving some of our toughest problems. Uh, and we are very fortunate today to have a guest who's doing just that. He's Congressman Mark Molinaro, uh, recently elected, November of 2022, uh, to serve New York's 19th Congressional District, but a long career in public service, going back to 1994 when he was elected America's youngest mayor at the age of 18. Um, we're going to talk about that, but that career and that commitment to public service uh, continued through um, a tenure in the New York State Assembly, uh, time as Dutchess County Executive, uh, and many, many ways in which he has served the community. Um, he represents and lives in upstate New York with his family, uh, Congressman Molinaro. Uh, we are thrilled to have you for many reasons, including uh, that you're a member of the House Agriculture Committee and so many of the food-related, agriculture, hunger-related issues that we care about at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign uh, are impacted enormously by the work of the House and the Senate Ag Committee. So thank you so much for being with us. We're recording on a Friday afternoon, and you probably had a long week and a lot of things, other things to get to. So uh, we want to be respectful of your time, but I just wanted to say uh, as we get started. Thanks so much for being with us. No, I'm happy to. And this might be the most pleasant conversation I'll have had all week. So I, <laughs> although I do like when I'm introduced as the youngest this and the youngest that, because it, it just reminds me that I've had a very long history of of being young. Yeah, I used to be introduced that way too. And now I'm the oldest everything. It's it's uh, it's, a, it's a big change. Uh, where are we catching you today? Where are you right now, Congressman? Well, I'm actually uh, uh, in, in my home in, uh, in upstate New York. So uh, um, taking a, a, a mental health hour to talk with you and then getting back on the, on the road over to uh, Columbia and then Greene County. Um, well, let, let, let's talk about being the youngest because we always, you know, our, our listeners always like to have an understanding of, of uh, how careers started, how people followed their passion. You know, we call this add passion and stir. And you've had a passion and a dedication to public service, uh, which you fulfilled so impressively. Uh, but how, how, do, how does it how do you end up uh in elective office at the age of 18. <laughs> like where did, the, did, did you start at 13? <laughs> yeah, I had nothing better to do. I, I, uh, no, I, um, you know, I, I, um, I, I credit a, uh, a high school, uh, government teacher, Steve Sutton, who I called by the way, on, uh, uh the, the night of uh, November 8th last year and, and thanked him for getting me here. Um, you know, I was one of those kids that, uh, you know, I kind of liked public, the concept of government politics. I, I was aware, you know, paying attention to, uh, you know, current affairs, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Uh, and he really encouraged me to get involved in student government, of course, uh, but also take part in a program called Presidential Classroom. Uh, John Kennedy launched this initiative oh, sure. a long time ago. Um, spent two weeks in Washington, D.C. and fell in love with, with the concept of public service in this country. Got back involved, got back home as a junior and senior in high school, volunteer in my little village. Tivoli, New York, 1,300 residents. We're, we are not all related, but we're very close. Um, and uh, I started a volunteer, um, interned for my state assemblywoman. And a number of folks, you know, generally senior citizens, remembered Tivoli, like every other north northeast little village that, you know, once had its heyday, remembered the energy and vibrancy. And they said, you know, you, you know a little bit about what's going on here. Why don't you run for the village board? And so um, you know, I, I, I decided that's what I would do. I ran for the village board of trustees, four-way race for two seats. 
uh, one with the most votes. Uh, so I wasn't elected by kids. Uh, that would mean most most residents voted for me. Uh, and a year later, uh, the mayor was planning to retire. Ed Neese, wonderful man, uh, asked me if I wanted to run. And so the, the line I tell, which is only half true, but it's uh, half true, I ran home and asked my mom if it'd be okay I run for mayor of Tivoli. And, and, uh, <laughs> and I was elected. Um, but but greatest job. I mean, um, you know, not to not to filibuster, but just but just to say that that when you serve in that level of government um, in a small place, you learn that the decisions you make have real impacts on real people, uh, and then when the roof leaks, it leaks on Republicans and Democrats. And the only job of local government is to fix the roof. Well, you know, it's interesting to hear you say that, Congressman, because I worked in government and politics in the Senate for a long time, and uh, worked with uh, senators, governors, and, and others, and. Uh, for all of those whom were mayors, I'm thinking of one of the people that uh, got involved with Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry came, campaign very early on, uh, former governor of Maryland, Martin O'Malley. Uh, his favorite job, and I've heard this over and over again, was mayor when he was mayor of Baltimore. And, and that just seems to be true across the board for the reasons that you described. Were there any other uh, uh, politicians or government uh, uh, officials in your family? Were you the first? I'm 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 the first, and um, uh, what I can tell you is that uh, growing up, we, uh, you know, my parents divorced when I was very young, and so um, you know, I readily admit my, my father and I didn't really have a relationship until much later in my life. Um, so my grandparents were always around. Uh, we uh, to this conversation, others we benefited from food stamps. My mother struggled very hard, but my grandparents were always around, and I I, I just listened. You know, I listened to my granddads, both who served in World War II. Uh, about their service, uh, about you know American history, uh, you know these were these were fellows who who kept up on on current events and they'd read the paper, we watched the news together, uh, and so there just was this expectation that you give back in some way, and as I like to joke, although I'm sure people who work for me and with me don't like when I say it, I mean I you know I don't have a lot of other skills other than <laughs> public service. It, it is a passion. Uh, it's something I believe in, um, and my grandfather Al D'Anzio pointed me to a quote that uh, Bobby Kennedy uh, had offered. Uh, when he referred to public uh, service as a dignified duty. And I, I've, I've remembered that always. We may not have shared political uh, uh, ideology per, uh, per se, but, but this concept that public service is a duty and that it ought to be treated with some degree of dignity uh, was something that, that I think they instilled in me. And then I watched my mother work hard. You know, I, I was forced to grow up very, very quickly. Um, you know, I, I got the phone calls from the electric company when she was un- unable to pay the bill. Um, she lived with undiagnosed depression and she's re- very open about it, but you know, I thought everybody's mom slept till noon on Saturdays. And so I, you know, I was making breakfasts and lunches and I don't know, uh, I think the, the, the next logical place or the, or, or step in life was to extend, you know, what, what was inspired in me, this concept of service, um, through, through giving back in my community. I did not think then that I would be here now. Uh, but I do know that public service is something that I, that I just believe deeply in. And you mentioned those two weeks in Washington, D.C. How old were you at the time? They sounded formative. And I asked because I remember in um, going way back now, 1968, during the you know one of the, the marches against the Vietnam War, my parents took me to Washington for the first time. And it made such an impression on me. Uh, separate from the, you know, the, the Vietnam War and the march and everything else, just the, the you know, I still my breath used to kind of catch when I looked up at the Capitol Dome, and it still does, honestly. But uh, the, just the history uh, that took place there, just it, it made me want to go there. And the day after I graduated college, I, I jumped in a car and I, I drove to D.C. and I, I'd been there ever since. But how old were you at the time and what was so formative about that? I was 17. It was just ahead of the uh, the 1992 presidential election. I, I remember it. 
Um, and for, I think the same, uh, I had the same, uh, you know, impact or impression that, that I think you did, which was, you know, I, here's this, this kid from upstate New York, grew up on food stamps. And I don't know, it was a magical place where some of the world's greatest history has been written and rewritten. Uh, and some of the, some of the most amazing uh, figures in, in, in modern history have, you know, have walked the halls or, uh, stood on the steps. Um, but I, I do remember sitting on the floor of the House of Representatives, which I, I told the story when I finally got there. I still I remember being on the floor of the House of Representatives as a student and and just listening to the House historian just talk about the you know um, the history there. Of course, the House itself uh, a little bit uh, built a little bit older in, in American uh, you know formative history, uh, but in the old House chamber where uh, where John Quincy Adams sat and, and sadly did uh, did pass, where Abe Lincoln served. Um, just feeling that was was inspirational, but then we you know we met with with uh, folks in the media and and the Supreme Court and and sort of and staffers and this whole buzz just this concept that every day you know again um, I, I will say that I've never I've not become a cynic but I certainly have had my eyes opened over the years but just this constant buzz of trying or seemingly trying to do something good uh, you know fuels the city. And, and it, I just felt it when I was there um, and, um, you know, thought this was, this was something I'd like to do. And again, I, you know, I, I, I tell, I, 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 looking back, I paid attention to modern, uh, uh, you know, current events. I don't know that you would have expected or I would have expected to two years later be thrown into fixing potholes, sewer main breaks and local land use. Um, it just, you know, it was sort of foreign to me until, until it wasn't. And, um, and then I've incrementally, you know, built, built from there. Uh, my my dad, Congressman, worked for a congressman from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is where I was from, uh, named Bill Moorhead at the time. And and on that trip to Washington, we went and we went into the House chamber and the speaker at the time was uh, Speaker John McCormick. Uh, so this is really ancient history now. But uh, he he came out and, and let us sit in the speaker's chair. And it's, you know, one of those moments as I was a, I was a young teenager, I just I never forgot it. And I knew that that's that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Well, I, I just I, I uh, you know, the, as as happens, right, uh, members uh, of the of the majority are assigned uh, speaker pro tem for a day or for a period of time. And I remember the first time in the last when I became a member of Congress that I was assigned to uh, to uh, preside over the House. And I recall exactly that same moment uh, in 19, I guess, 92, uh, standing uh, on the speaker's rostrum, um, you know, taking a photograph. And there I was holding the gavel, instructing, if you will, or at least overseeing uh, the activities of that afternoon. So it was uh, it was really, uh, really special, a little overwhelming and, 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 and truly inspiring. Uh, let me ask you a question, since you're relatively new in this position. You know, one of the things I, I guess I'm just curious, like, when members of Congress get there, I've seen, and again, I worked on the Hill for 15 years. I've seen so many good men and women from both political parties come to uh, Congress uh, with you know good ideas, some of which I agree with, some of which I didn't. But something seems to happen once many members get there uh, that I kind of like describe as like they look around and they decide I, I never want, I never want to leave and I will do whatever I have to do to stay here, which seems to be one of the diseases that, that, um, that creates polarization and political politicization in our Congress. And I'm just like wondering, you know, for somebody so new, uh, and obviously it's such an important place to be, to make an impact. Um, what do you, and I'm not asking you to say anything out of school about any of your colleagues, but is that a is that a real thing? Or am I making that up? Um, uh, and how do we how do we get to the point where we 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 don't put the 
you know, kind of the political success above everything else. Yeah, I, you know, I, I would say that there certainly are a good number who want to be there for the sake of being there. Um, but even they, you know, have a desire to do something um, uh, of some purpose. Um, and, and I would offer you that my first, uh, you know, sort of observation is, is most are trying to accomplish something. Um, some of it's not big, right? Uh, I think uh, those who recognize that they can't be all things uh, or involved in all issues are, are more successful. And so they, they tinker around the edges. They move on issues that maybe are a little bit, uh, a lot below the radar, uh, but they're meaningful, they're purposeful, and, and, they, and they're earnest about it. Um, there are those who are drawn to the light, right? Uh, the uh, the national news and the media and the tension and the uh, clicks and the and the fundraising and and you know I really can't speak for them uh, other than yes it, it is you know it is uh, intoxicating to a degree. Um, I just you know I witnessed uh, for uh, well since since becoming an elected official I, I served with uh, the likes of uh, Jerry Solomon and Ham Fish in New York State. Um, these these were folks who who plotted along um, and, and and attempted to ch- to achieve things. I'm sure they must have played politics. I'm sure they must have done the things that we do, fundraise, et cetera. But what you saw both in, in the district were, were earnest members of Congress. And what you saw in Washington were, were that they were willing to take on the important um, you know, fights, I'm sure uh, even the small ones, but they were willing to take on the important fights in a dignified and, and responsible way. That for me uh, is, is, is what I think is best. Um, the other thing I will offer out loud, and, and, and I, it's hard to understand until you're there, but the House of Representatives does really work in a you know in a very segmented way. It is it's a it's a committee f- structure. Um, you know, each committee has very finite jurisdiction. Some of this dates back to Jefferson, um, and and it's and it's slow. And so, if you want to accomplish something, it's hard to do that in two years. It just is. And um, and then add to that the you know the magnetism, if you will, of of the partisanship both inside and outside the Capitol. Uh, you know, we are not. Uh, innocent bystanders as citizens. Uh, we, you know, we also engage in the practice of only talking to the people with whom we agree, and so it makes it a little bit uh, even more hard. Uh, excuse me, a little more difficult now, um, you know, to kind of break through that because you're always being pulled a little bit towards the edges, and and often that isn't the most productive place to be. If that makes any sense. Uh, no, it, it absolutely does, and I think that's um, that, that's a pretty. Uh, important and a, and a great kind of bird's eye view lens on it. Um, I want to go back to your reference uh, uh, to being raised by a single mom and, and being raised on food stamps. And I'm curious, was that something that you, uh, were you cognizant of that at the time? Is that something that you were even aware of as, as probably a, you know, a child? Uh, or is it something that you just kind of like integrated and internalized uh, afterwards and 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 either way, like what did it what did it feel like? What does it feel like now? What did it? How did it shape your views on on SNAP and food assistance in general, which we still have some forty million Americans uh, depending on? Yeah, and so um, I don't remember when my mother signed us up for the you know the free school lunch because I remember thinking all those suckers at James V. Forrestal Elementary School had to pay for lunch and I didn't, but I do remember her waiting in line at the social service agency. Uh, in fact, in Dutchess County. Uh, to uh, to apply for uh, you know what we would call uh, food stamp snap today, and and I remember how um, how how she felt powerless, um, and I remember it vividly. Uh, and the person she interacted with probably had a bad day uh, and didn't make her feel any better. And in the moment of her weakness, uh, was made made to feel worth less. Um, and, and so from that, I, I, I know, and, and remember the, the government cheese, although I don't think we really had government cheese. We, we had lots of things in cans. I don't recall why, but nevertheless, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it was what we got. 
Um, and my mother made clear that this was a, a chance for us to kind of get ourselves on our feet. And, and so I was very aware at the time that this was benefit. Um, my grandparents, um, you know, spoke, they lived through the depression. So they spoke about government helping you and, 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 and our job was to, to kind of make good that, that my mother was working at, you know, extra jobs, uh, although don't tell the IRS, uh, she was working a lot of jobs and, and my grandparents became, you know, sort of my second parents. And, and so, uh, very much aware of it. Now imagine fast forward, uh, to 2011 and I get elected uh, Dutchess County Executive in New York State. Executive County Executives are singular. We we, we manage a you know the municipal government, but but New York's very unique. Uh, county governments also manage all of those social service agencies. So I became the administer uh, administrator of the very social services department. My mother waited in line all those years before to get food stamps. Um, and I and it compelled me to you know sort of address this concept that. Uh, respectfully, that that there are a lot of people who 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 benefit and need that assistance, uh, and and government over the years has become less focused on empowering people and more focused on processing payments. And that isn't to say people don't need the help; they do, but they they need they need the help of their government to help them get from where they are uh, to empowerment. And that that's been lost. And and I saw it in in vivid color in, in my mother's eyes when 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 we were there all those years ago. It's uh, it's really striking to listen to how much that left an impression on you. And, and I think it relates to your very first comments about okay. uh, the importance of doing this work with dignity and respecting the dignity of, of the work. And I take issue with, by the way, with some of my colleagues who diminish um, or, or dismiss the people who are benefiting from these, uh, from these services. Um, everyone's struggling with something and, 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 you know, some, um, some do become dependent and that's understandable in a system that, that often is more interested in processing them than, than empowering them. And so I just think we've lost a lot of both our compassion, right? We have to be more compassionate about it. We also need to be, um, I think purposeful that, that what we offer in aid and assistance needs to be about helping people get from where they are to a position of empowerment and independence, not necessarily cut them loose, but, but encourage and support them. Um, I, I'd mentioned you in the debt ceiling bill, a lot of things uh, that we had to obviously address, uh, but I'm very happy that there's a section of that bill that I wrote. There's actually a paragraph in the, in the Fiscal Responsibility Act no one pays attention to um, that, that I wrote that, 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 that alters the mission statement of social services from simply processing payments, which is important, uh, to helping people get to work, not forcing them out, not kicking them off. But, but wrapping around those services that we know are, are necessary, some cases mental health, some cases might be substance use assistance and maybe education or fiscal or, or nutritional literacy, uh, give them the wraparound support necessary to get them from where they are to where they ultimately want to be, which is to be independent, great parents, and, uh, and making a, a difference in their own lives. And I think that's an important message to be sent. Um, Congressman, tell us a little bit about your district, about New York 19. Um, what are the issues there? Uh, what most pressing matters are you dealing with? What does hunger look like uh, in the district? Yeah, you know, uh, so I'm where upstate meets downstate. If you've ever watched New York, uh, you know that uh, there's a ongoing debate as to where upstate is. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's basically for uh, my district is 11 counties large stretches from where New York meets Massachusetts across the Catskill Mountains and Hudson River to, to the southern tier, Binghamton, New York, Ithaca, New York. Uh, and uh, beautiful natural environment, wonderful farm farmland and agricultural uh, industries associated, uh, and then small villages, hamlets, and cities. You know those those traditional villages that still have a bit of vibrancy um, and and life. But then there's those larger or mid-sized cities that once were manufacturing or industrial uh, centers that that lost those 
those employers. And we, you know, we come from a place that, and I live in a place that that knows what it's like to have government and, and industry turn its back um, and, and move on. And of course, we live in a place where, frankly, because of high taxes, regulation, burden, access to jobs, et cetera, et cetera, you know, we're losing population. Uh, our family members are moving to other parts of the country. And so it's it's a place that that works hard. It's a bit of a hard scrabble kind of place, right? Works hard to make ends makes ends meet. Make ends meet has a great deal of pride in itself, uh, but also knows uh, you know the feeling of of, uh, of abandonment, if you will. Uh, that that said, what is, what does hunger look like? Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's black and white. It's uh, um, it's struggling, um, underemployed middle class, uh, and and those. Uh, that uh, that that struggle uh, to find uh, even even you know enough work to uh, uh, to stay to keep a roof over their homes, um, and so you know we saw that in full color. Uh, sadly, during the, during the pandemic, uh, some of the ugliest parts of us was exposed uh, when we hit sort of low, t- low tide, um, and uh, and there are families and individuals that that do struggle pretty hard. But but a lot of it is because we we just lack the um, you know the the, the economic growth that, that you need. Uh, in order, in order to to support upward mobility and and, and access to uh, to a good job. You know, we're always trying to get across that hunger is really a symptom of, you know, a set of deeper problems, and that you, um, you, you know, you you can't fight hunger with food. It takes more than food to fight hunger. Uh, to to your point about economic growth, uh, and so you know, we're always thinking on two tracks, and I'm just wondering how this aligns with with your thinking. Uh, and on the one track is. You know there are programs like SNAP and School Meals and WIC and and others that uh, can make a vital difference for folks. And if they're eligible, uh, we need to figure out what kind of either bureaucratic or political or uh, other types of barriers are standing between uh, hungry kids and families and and healthy meals. But at the same time, uh, you know that's not enough. Maybe in a triage sense, uh, we need to make sure that families can access those benefits. But uh, I think the the the, the more permanently impactful work um, and the work that, frankly, only policymakers can do effectively is to address some of these, you know, underlying economic issues. So d- does that square with the way you think about it? And are there ways that you would advise organizations like ours and anti-hunger activists like those we represent to be focused on some of these underlying economic issues. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit of a, a Jack Kemp fan for those who remember him. But this concept that that you want to invest uh, effectively, maybe not in, in big f- fiscal policy, but the concept of investing effectively in cities, village, hamlet centers, um, and so yeah, they're they're linked. And and so for a place where like the one the communities I represent and serve and have lived in, it means effectively getting dollars on the ground for for municipal infrastructure, water, sewer pipes, sidewalks and streets public transportation. It means high-speed uh, internet access. Uh, and by the way, it means reducing some of the regulatory burden that keeps some of the medium and, and smaller employers from growing um, and, and making re- real sustainable investments uh, within communities. Um, we've got to address the, the, the associated housing costs. Where I'm from, we've got to address uh, lack of daycare and the high cost of daycare. And so, yeah, it's it's this, uh, you say, uh, you use the term triage, you know, we can't keep people in the emergency room <laughs> and not provide them uh, a greater support until they, until they go back home again. And so um, there needs to be all of that sort of, you know, uh, hands-on, if you will. 
uh, to, uh, to to overcome the, uh, the the very base challenges that that we face. And and yeah, I, I I don't know about advice to organizations like yours other than to be cognizant of the fact that um, that that the tools we use, Snap and and Wick, they're important, but they only get us so far. And so there needs to be the coordinated effort, and there needs, by the way, by the way, also needs to be an expectation that these programs deliver results. You know, I, I lived as an example. I lived through the last massive infrastructure bill. It was administered by uh, then Vice President Joe Biden, and states like New York never really got the dollars on the ground. They never made a meaningful impact in towns, villages, and cities across the state, and so we never really saw the the great boon and benefit of of of, of sustained and, and important infrastructure investment. We're making some of the same mistakes again in New York, where those dollars aren't going to get on the ground into into neighborhoods and communities. New York spends massive amounts of money on education, and, and we ought to be spending money on education. But the but in this state, the dollars get to to the schools that sometimes don't need it, and some of our poorer schools or upstate communities are seeing the erosion or the deterioration of their buildings, and their kids are left with lead pipes and and tainted water. It's just in order to be truly impactful, government has to be competent. And, 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 and demanding that, that we fire on all cylinders, I think, is, uh, is an important expectation. Yeah, so, what, I mean, what you're talking about right now must be so enormously frustrating to you. And, and, <laughs> you don't even have to end the sentence. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> all right. And, and, but, and is it, you mentioned competence. Is it, is it competence? Is it politics? Is it business as usual? Like, why, 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 isn't, why aren't those dollars reaching you? Well, here's the thing I, I say as, as a bit of an analogy and example. I, you know, when you're an executive, and I, have, I was an executive 24 of the last 30 years, you don't start a project unless you know how it's going to end. As a legislator, too many start projects without any concern for how it's going to end. Um, and there are too few, in, and I say respectfully, I've got great deal of respect for a lot in, in both the federal, uh, in, in, the, in, in, in the federal administration and, and state administration, but there are too few who care about the results. They care about more about making a point than making a difference. And so to your point, to me, it, it's frustrating. It's not uh, alienating. It's not something that I'd give up on. Um, it's just, I have no problem asking people to pay for something if I can prove they're getting it. And too often, I think, in, in particular in the federal government, because it is so divorced from the impactfulness of their decisions at the local level or in the human, at, the, at the human level, there isn't the same degree of expectation. And so we don't measure success. We don't know what success necessarily looks like. We measure you know, uh, process. And, and that, to me, is, uh, is more than frustrating. It's, it's, um, uh, you know, it's really it's, it's damning because we, we have the power to be meaningful and purposeful and effective. Uh, we just don't often test ourselves or hold ourselves to that level of expectation. Well, one of the big pieces of legislation where a lot of the, the issues that, that, that we focus on get addressed is the, the, the farm bill. Uh, any insights into uh, the prospects for the farm bill? Yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to serve on the House Ag Committee. I come from a farming community. Um, I often joke that, uh, although it is true, one of my very first jobs uh, was um, uh, in order to learn horseback riding. I, I traded shoveling horse uh, manure for six years. I worked a horse farm in Tivoli, New York for, for six winters. And I say uh, those six years of shoveling horse manure has prepared me well for serving in Congress. <laughs> um, but um, uh, I wanted to serve on the committee. Um, G.T. Thompson, the chairman, uh, is is determined to have a bipartisan farm bill uh, done uh, and and at least ready for the House to consider uh, by October. Um, we're 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 truly engaged uh, in in real bipartisan negotiation. You know the flashpoints. Your listeners know the flashpoints. These are not. This isn't new. 
we're, we're obviously going to debate, um, you know, food stamps and nutrition programs. Uh, but then also, uh, you know, we want to effectively use uh, federal dollars to make make uh, broadband investments, uh, uh, natural resource conservation. Um, but I, I do think that we're going to get a bipartisan bill out of the Ag Committee for consideration by the House uh, by the end of September. Uh, the Senate's moving pretty effectively. Uh, the Speaker wants a, a farm bill. We want a farm bill. Uh, we want to be able to prove uh, in, every time we come up uh, against one of these bills, we have to pass. Someone will suggest we can't do it, and then we do it. Uh, we did NDAA. It's got its warts, and it'll be negotiated out, uh, the, the nat- National Defense Bill. Uh, we just this week passed uh, the uh, FAA uh, reauthorization, America's Aviation Policy. Again, um, some didn't think we'd get it done, but we did. Got, it's got its warts, but it'll be negotiated out. And I suspect the same will occur with the Farm Bill. Uh, but the Farm Bill is meaningful and impactful for, uh, for, for as GT, uh, the chairman would say, for everybody who produces something and everybody who consumes something, <laughs> which is all of us. And I agree. Uh, it is America's food policy. It's, it's, it's America's farm policy. Uh, and in many ways, it's America's natu- national defense policy. And um, uh, we need the bill. And I think we're going to deliver on it. Well, let me ask you just two last things, because you've been very generous with your time. And I want to let you go. Uh, one has to do with uh, the, the the farm bill and with, with SNAP and, you know, uh, any uh, changes or reforms or improvements that you anticipate or think are needed with SNAP. And the other is I just want to uh, also hear you talk a little bit about uh, farm families with disabilities, because I know you've been a leader on that issue. And uh, it's an issue, frankly, that I've never thought much about. Um, but uh, and I think probably a lot of folks haven't. And I would love to hear about why, you know, this issue of disabilities with farm families has been important to you. So tell us a little bit about SNAP and a little bit about that, and then we'll let you go. Yeah, and, and I'd like to end on the on the um, uh, disability uh, component. Um, you know, I think we're still going to have a bit of a fight uh, over uh, the you know the, the term uh, work requirements. I think we addressed much of that and feel comfortable we addressed much of that in the Fiscal Re- uh, Responsibility Act, the debt ceiling agreement. Uh, but there still will be a push there. I will tell you that my my focus is is more on the governments themselves. States administer food stamps, and states should be held to the expectation that that people are being benefited. Uh, and that they're being uh, supported. So I'm going to continue to push this concept of ensuring that recipients uh, also receive nutritional uh, and and financial uh, literacy uh, support, and and that the the programs themselves are integrated and don't function in silos. And I think that that's uh, an important component. Uh, and that there's some flexibility uh, for for folks who maybe can't get to to food, have food delivered to them, uh, things of that nature. That that I think on both sides of the aisle will agree to. But but yes, we will continue to to have the conversation about uh, work requirements. Um, and again, I, I think we've addressed that. But there will be others who want to push a little further. And I, I suspect that that'll be a little bit of uh, of the flashpoint to use to use my term. Um, 80% of those with disabilities are unemployed, 80, 80%. And more and more families know that the struggle and the challenges of raising a child or living with an intellectual, physical, or developmental disabilities. Agriculture is not immune from any of this. Farm families have the same uh, challenges uh, and uh, and many times are left out of the, the conversation. And employers in the agriculture industry would benefit from those with disabilities entering into uh, into agriculture. As the father of four children, one one who lives with a disability, I've lived this my whole life, my adult life, uh, and, and I've spent a lot of time in this space, uh, launched an initiative called Think Differently uh, in my home county, uh, meant to break down barriers and create opportunities for those with disabilities. 100 communities across the country now uh, embrace the Think Differently principles that we launched in my hometown, in my home county. Uh, but the, the concept here is that in particular, for those uh, in the agricultural community with disabilities, 
the Agra Ability Program, which now I'm sponsoring a, uh, an enhancement to, uh, expanding the Think Differently pr- footprint and, and doubling uh, the funding would provide resources and tools to those with disabilities to access, enter, and maintain themselves in uh, the farming uh, industry. The last I will say, though, is that in particular, those with intellectual disabilities, uh, farming is a very uh, unique um, opportunity for them because uh, many of the farm jobs are seg- are segmented. There's a there's sort of a, a redundant and tedious job that needs to be done uh, by by people who are empowered by uh, simply going to work and having that connection with uh, with earning a paycheck, creating uh, a path for those with disabilities to enter uh, agriculture. Um, you know, is meaningful for them, and I would say is 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 certainly impactful and beneficial to the industry as a whole. So it's an area that we're focused on. It uh, I'm not limited in that. Um, been pushing that in the FAA bill, pushed it uh, in the NDAA. Uh, you know, again, 80% of those with disabilities are left unemployed and they, and, and with so many other challenges. And if we can break down barriers and create opportunities for them, uh, we, we truly make a difference in the lives of people, uh, who, who need us to be speaking for them. And, and by the way, really benefit ourselves. Well, th- you know, thanks so much for your work on this Congressman, because, you know, there are a, a number of different communities and populations that I always think of as underserved because their needs are just less visible, uh, and they don't have the same, uh, voice necessarily politically. And they depend on people like you to, to be that voice. So, um, Thanks for that uh, work with the, the disability community. Uh, we've been talking with Congressman Mark Molinaro, a lifetime of public service um, representing uh, upstate New York, New York's 19th congressional district and uh, a member of the House Agriculture Committee and will be uh, really a force in uh, debating and discussing and legislating uh, many of the food programs that are most important to Americans who experience hunger. Uh, it's really been an honor to have you on at Passion and Stir, Congressman. Thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Take care. You've been listening to Ad Passion and Stir. Please visit us at Ad Passion and Stir. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Share Ad Passion and Stir with a friend and rate the show so that others can find it. Ad Passion and Stir is produced by Paul Woody Whittle's team at District Productive with support from our team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. That includes my sister Debbie Shore, Pamela Taylor, Megan Cantrell, and Kelly Griffin. We'll be back in two weeks with more stories of individuals sharing their strengths to make a difference in the world. Until then, thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.